Good morning. We've had a little change in the weather, haven't we? It's a little cool, feels good, it's refreshing, and we're thankful for it. God's given us a beautiful day, and we're grateful for it. I just want to say that it's been a joy and it's been a privilege of mine to be here during Camp Syker. And I'm grateful for uh, the invitation and the privilege that has been mine, the opportunity to serve. So I, I do want to thank some folks, and I really appreciate Dale and Judy. I appreciate Beth uh, helping as, as, as well today, and appreciate the, the leader of Matt and uh, leadership of Matt and Blaine as they have um, back and forth assisted in the leading of the services. Grateful to the board. Um, I don't know that any of the board members know me. That was probably a good thing um, prior to me coming. And uh, now that I'm known, we'll just see what happens. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's, it, it really has been a joy and a privilege to serve. I also am so thankful to uh, meet Billy Huddleston and to work with Wesley Rouse. I had not had that privilege before. And so I have, I've really been enriched this, um, this time over these uh, 10 days or so. It really has been a refreshing time to uh, be under their ministry. So it's been a great opportunity. I thank you also for your attentiveness and your kindness. You know, some, somewhere along the way during the week, this is how gracious you are here at Syker. Someone stole my meal ticket and um, it just came up missing. In fact, I was told that someone probably ate it, but I was allowed to go through the meal line anyway and uh, little marks, little check marks were made that I did come through the line and I was still able to eat. So that just shows what kind of folks you really are here. And uh, I thank you so much for that degree of generosity and uh, the kindness that you have shown. But really it has been uh, a deep and abiding joy. So I'm thankful for what God has done. We're going to look uh, today for my last time with you, Philippians 2, 1 through 13, perhaps one of the most profound passages in Scripture that offers to us an opportunity as well as really a form of a, of a cooperative command that, dare we say, we are called to be like Christ. We are called to be like Jesus. The inspired Paul wrote this knowing that his time was brief and unless he was freed from his Roman imprisonment and unless things turned out differently than what he was anticipating, he knew that these were his last days. I want to hear someone who knows their time is short. I want to hear what they have to say. It tends to be distilled. It tends to be profound. When someone knows that their time is short, I want to hear what their faith has brought them to at that point. They have a, a validity and and I think a credibility to them that we ought to pay attention to. So let's look together at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. 
Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What a text. What a text. I pray that the Holy Spirit can help us grasp the truth that he has for us today and that it will do its good work in us as the Holy Spirit applies it to us. I mentioned this is a prison letter. It's a prison letter to loved ones. There might be a glimmer of hope that the Apostle Paul has that he might be released, but it's just a glimmer. And I think as each day passes, it fades quickly. But we find in the first chapter of Philippians, in the 21st verse, the sweet resolution that the Apostle Paul has reached. And I think it's a marvelous testament to his faith. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What a testimony. Isn't that grand? For, me, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's a prayerful letter. And it's of the highest spiritual hope or aspiration for his beloved believers in Philippi. He loves these people. These are dear to him. And he has the highest hopes for them. And he expresses them in these verses we have just read. I do want us to note, though, that the Apostle Paul is not expressing some kind of utopian spiritual ideology that when the, when the rubber meets the road and in crunch, in crunch time, in real living, it's likely to be brought down and reduced. 
The Apostle Paul doesn't deal with ideology. He deals with what can be, what ought to be, what must be in the life of a believer through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I don't want us to get the idea that this is just something that he is dangling out in front of them as a tremendous hope so but a not likelihood. Do we get the point? What he is saying is, this is my heart prayer for you, that this will be real, that this will not be unrealistic, that this will not be unattainable, but that this will be your life in a, in a world and in a context that isn't a friend to grace, but that by the grace of God and by the power of God, you will be able to live this way. That speaks well to our own day, doesn't it? We don't live in a world that is a friend to grace. And I don't mean to say this tritely, but so what? God's grace is sufficient for us to live a life in real, true, everyday victory by the energizing energy of God Himself. My goodness, God is for us, and we need to remember that. Verses 1 through 4 provide a brief description of the Jesus life that he wants us to live. It's a wonderful, wonderful description of how God can enable us to live. And I do want to cite one specific verse before we look more closely at the Jesus way and the Jesus mind, the Christ mind in you and in me. In verse 4, this is an important verse that I think makes a distinction that we ought to note. God does not expect us to absolutely divorce ourselves from any kind of interest that relates to ourselves. If we're not careful, we will talk about self-centeredism to the point where we'll say we shouldn't even be interested in ourselves. But look what the Apostle Paul says. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. If you think about how you take care of yourself, God expects us to doesn't he? He expects us to take care of what he's given us. If we're not stewards of our own bodies and our own lives and our own minds and our own spirit, we're not going to be stewards of anyone else. We're not going to try to help anybody else on to God. So God does expect us to do what we need to do and put ourselves in the places where we get the means of grace that he makes available to us. God expects us to have some interest in ourselves, right? Amen. Thank you for that. I know it's early. You know, I did things today like I shaved. Okay? And you might think, okay, who cares? Well, I did that because I care about you. I bathed because I care about you. I did all kinds of things because I care about you. I brushed my teeth because I care about you. I even used, you know, breath mints because I care about you. There are many interests, self-interests that we see to, don't we? We do it every day. It's not because we are egotistical. It's because we know that the older we go, it needs a lot of work. It's just a reality. We become higher and higher maintenance. It doesn't mean we are self-absorbed if we just take care of ourselves. So there are interests that are truly related to ourselves. 
But we are not to be self-centered to where we don't care about anyone else's interests. So the Apostle Paul makes that balance very, very clear. Take care of yourself, but also see to the needs of others. Care about them. See to them. He'll say things like, in honor, preferring one another. Be concerned more about someone else getting attention than you getting attention. All of those kinds of things that make for a better atmosphere and a better context for the church of Jesus Christ. If we are always concerned about getting the attention, having um, our name brought before a, a, an audience, getting public praise, if we are preoccupied with that, we will stymie and stifle the work of God. But how well God's work moves forward when we do not care about our, ourselves getting attention. But he doesn't rule out taking care of ourselves. So there's a beautiful verse there that I just don't want us to miss. But I want to move beyond that to this whole challenge, but this attainable, reachable, accessible objective of getting the Christ mind. Getting the Christ mind. Really, in the language of the original, the Apostle Paul is saying, see to it then. See to it that you have the same disposition regarding your life that Christ did about his. Everything Jesus did was to do the will of his Father and to finish his work for the Father's glory and for your good and mine. Aren't you thankful he completed his work? Amen. I'll stop and maybe say that's a good place to say amen. Aren't we thankful that he didn't stop short? Aren't we thankful that when he wrestled in Gethsemane, he didn't call it quits? Aren't we thankful that he, he said as not only a testament of his own faithfulness, but as a, as a template for us, not, your, or not my will, Father, but your will be done. Aren't we thankful he completed to the end everything that the Father called upon him to do? He humbled himself. You and I cannot fully grasp the extent of his humbling. We just can't. We can get perhaps little snippets of it here and, and there, and we can mull over what it cost him. But in, in really, in all candor, you and I cannot fully grasp what it was like for the Son of God to empty himself. In one sense, it means to flush away all of who he was so that he could come and serve as he did. You and I can't ever get a hold of that. It's beyond us. It's just too great for us. C.S. Lewis described it this way. He said it's a little bit like, but he said it's not even accurate, but he said it's a little bit like one of us becoming a slug. Now, we don't like that, do we? We don't like that picture. But he said it's a little like that. A little like us becoming a slug. What it required of Jesus to come into this world is staggering 
But I want us to understand what he's talking about when he says this attitude or this disposition, this mindset. Have the Jesus mindset in you or have the attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus. My father, when he was pastoring in Eugene, Oregon, was allowed to pursue what he was never able to do in World War II. He was a World War II veteran, but he ended up serving in the infantry. But what he wanted to do is he wanted to be um, a flyer. He really wanted to fly. But he had an irregular heartbeat, didn't even know about it until he had his physical, and they said, well, you cannot go into the Air Force with an irregular heartbeat. I guess in the infantry, we don't care. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll send you into the infantry. But he could not fly based on that condition. So he always wanted to fly, and he had that interest to fly. And so in Eugene, Oregon, in the 60s, when it wasn't very expensive to pursue that hobby, he pursued that hobby. And it was interesting. We often heard about his uh, his weekly flight instruction time because he was he had an instructor who was also a pastor. I can't remember uh, accurately if he was Presbyterian or Lutheran, but my dad would say, I had him for an hour up in the air, and I worked on his theology. And it, I, I, rem I do remember to this day his name was Reverend Black, and my dad formed quite a friendship with him and quite a relationship with him. But my dad uh, qualified for his private pilot's license. And I will, I will tell you one of the most enjoyable things as um, a preteen and then as a teen, because he kept that in place for about 20 years, was occasionally going out and going to the local airport and renting a little Cessna and uh, going up and flying over the area in a little, little Cessna. I was thrilled with that. Now, this broke every, probably every rule in the book, but Dad let me fly. He let me fly. Before I ever had, had a driver's license, he let me fly. And I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> he, let me, he let me fly. And he taught me what the gauges were about. And so, believe me, this illustration's going somewhere. He taught me about uh, the gauges and which to watch, especially when you're, when you're airborne, when you're up in the air. And he said, Jonathan, I want you to, to keep your eyes frequently, because I thought, keep your eyes out the windshield. We do that in a car, don't we? And I hope you do. Um, we, we, we look out the, the front windshield, don't we? We do. Thanks. Just want to make sure that you're with me. These are basics, I know, but I just want to make sure that we're, we're engaged. That would be the tendency when you're flying, would be to look out the windshield. You almost have to do the reverse. You need to watch your gauges. I didn't realize how important that was. One of the things that I learned when you're up in the air is you kind of lose, you can lose your bearings. And you can lose a sense of, of really where you are in relation to the fixed horizon. So he said, there's one gauge in particular when you're up in the air that I really want you to pay attention to. And he said, it is the attitude indicator, the attitude director indicator. He said, I want you to look at that. Now, simply, it's that little gauge that has wings. And you have a line across that gauge. And you can see, because your, your, your attitude indicator mimics the yaw, it's called the yaw, of your wings. 
And I, I thought I was doing great. My dad would say, look at your yaw. I thought, what's he saying, my yaw? I thought maybe it was a Scandinavian term for jaw. Look at your yaw. Anyway, um, so I thought, what's he talking about? And he, he said, pay attention to that. Look at it frequently. And I realized when I thought I was right where I ought to be, I was easily letting a wing drop and letting one raise. So he said, keep your eye on the attitude indicator. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the horizon serves as a fixed axis, something that is constant, stable, and dependable. We have to keep ourselves in proper relation to the fixed axis. So in this case, we can take to heart that Jesus or the will of the Father, serves as our horizon, serves as our fixed axis. And our responsibility is to check our attitude. Now, I know I said that to my sons, and it meant something completely different. Check your attitude. But there is a sense in which you and I need to check our attitude constantly if we want to be in step with and in keeping with the attitude, the mindset, or the disposition of Jesus. Do we get that? Do we understand that? So attitude here really means the set tone or the, the set disposition that God wants us to have that is without a doubt that which mimics the attitude or the mindset of Jesus. So have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. The horizon of the Father's will, your yaw angle in relation to that fixed axis is critical. Let this into you. Allow this attitude. In other words, cooperate with everything that God wants to do to settle your purpose and to fix your mindset. All we have to do, it's really not that difficult, all we have to do is just cooperate with what God wants to do in us. Isn't that wonderful that he doesn't ask of us the impossible? He doesn't ask of us to do what we cannot produce. But he just does say, would you just listen to me? Would you do what I ask you to do? Would you obey me? Would you keep step with me? And would you trust in my resources that I have all the adequacy necessary to help you be like me? Oh, that we would just do that. What a difference it would make. Let this attitude or... Allow, the, with cooperation, this mindset to be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Then we get into the meat of what that looks like. Who? So he's speaking of Jesus in verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. I don't know that we really will get a hold of this, but I want to put it this way for us. What Jesus was willing to do and what the Apostle Paul is making a point of at this juncture is this remarkable fact. Jesus, who is unquestionably and unequivocally, he is the radiant splendor and the glory of the Godhead. 
He is everything that God is. He is not a second-rate part of the Trinity. He is the Creator God. He is the God that is the final word. He is the God that comes to meet our need. He is the great and holy God. John makes that clear as the word that is equal and co-equal with God. Yet this equal part of the Trinity, this glorious, radiant, splendid Son of God, let go. He let go of all of who he is. He let go of all of his rights. Now let's just take a moment and highlight that, especially as we look at what we think we have a right to. We really let go of our supposed rights. But Jesus let go of his real rights. Everything that Jesus is, everything that is justifiable in how he brings honor and glory to himself, everything about his rightful place, everything about his power and his authority, he just released. He let go of it. That is so foreign to us isn't it? We are grabbers. We are grabbing for all that we can possibly get. Our world, our context, our culture, in fact, encourages that, doesn't it? Our culture, which is consumeristic, and, and it's consumeristic for a purpose. Let's just face it. The world's trying to make money off of us. So one of the ways, ways that it does that and one of the ways that they boost their profit margin is they tell us we deserve it and they tell us we've got to go out and get it and we have to get the new and improved version. Grab it, grab it, get it, get it. Everything that you could possibly have, Jesus had. And he let go of it. And he comes to a world that all they're doing is grabbing after it in a white-knuckled, grip-for-all-your-worth kind of way. So that Jesus who just let go and released who he is says to you and me, let it go. Let go. Let go of what you think is yours. Let go of what you perceive are your rights we think we have glory. And by the way, it's only an illusion. It's an illusion of our own making to think we ever have glory. Have you ever noticed that five seconds after some glorious, glorious individual has been lauded in our culture, people can't even remember his or her name? Have you ever noticed that? You know, and everybody these days, if you ever noticed this, I, I kind of didn't pick up early on the term. It took me a while to kind of catch up with our culture. And then when I did, I was kind of sorry that I did. But um, the whole term goat, you know, the greatest of all time, greatest of all time. Have you ever noticed today, everyone's a goat? Everybody's a goat. Here a goat, there a goat. Everywhere a goat, goat. But I would just say, friends, that's probably more accurate than they think. Goat. 
not greatest of all time, just a goat. You're a little slow on the uptake this morning. That's all right. I've been with you. I've been there. Everybody's a goat. Oh, they're a goat. They're a goat. They're a goat. I watch golf. And, you know, everybody's a goat until they have a bad tournament, hit a slump. I'm not a goat anymore. I was a goat. Now I'm not a goat. Everything that we think we make to bring glory to ourselves is an illusion. It's always out of reach. I don't know if we understand that, but it's always just out of our reach. So what God tells us in this verse is, let go of what you don't even have. Let it go. Because Jesus let go of what he really had. Now look at what the Mount of Transfiguration reminded us of. There was a glimpse, there was a fleeting moment when Peter, James, and John actually saw Jesus as he was. What came out of that? Listen to him. Then at the wedding at Cana, Mary said, whatever he tells you to do, whatever he says to you, do it. Then in the call to be holy for God is holy is a call to imitate him. Here we look at the call to be like Jesus. Let go and actively believe. So what does letting go require? Well, we've already mentioned it a little bit, emptying. We know that in this passage, for those that study theology, it's known as the great kenosis portion of Scripture. The incarnation is an indescribable condescension, and we must never forget that. It is a coming down from such heights that we can't imagine to such lows we can't imagine that it is a seismic shift that you and I just simply can't fully comprehend. For God to become man is just a move and a leap and a downward movement that you and I cannot fully grasp. But the text goes beyond that. It isn't just that Jesus, who is God, the Son of God, came all the way down and became a man. We might say, oh, but he became a goat, the greatest of all time. What did Jesus do? He became one that would not have even been noted or a standout in a crowd. Wow. He has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. So he wasn't that regal-looking figure. He was as common as common could be. Beyond that, the spiral downward persisted. He not only became a man, a common man, but he became a servant, a servant. Do we get this? The Son of God became a servant. But then he suffered, suffered anguish, horrible treatment, and ultimately death. Death on a cross, a cross death that was reserved for the least of citizenry in 
the Roman world. Slaves were crucified or the worst criminals and felons, the vilest of offenders, were those who were put on a cross. Down and down and down Jesus went in the emptying of himself. He relinquished his claims. The creator became the creature. He became the humblest of humans. He suffered the creature's plight, death, but the worst of all kinds of death, the death on the cross. What a picture, and then what a challenge that Paul says, let this disposition or mindset or attitude be in you. Remember, Jesus is the horizon. Fix yourself on him. Have this attitude, have this disposition, have this mindset in you that was in Christ Jesus. But we're not going to stop there. You might wish we did, but we're not going to stop there. Here is the response. For this reason, or so then, my beloved. You know, we have the reminder to us that the emptying, the humiliation, the downward spiral is what made possible Jesus' exaltation. Don't forget that. Don't forget that God has, as a result of his obedience, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is unique, higher than any other name. It is the greatest name the world has ever known. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is the one who has atoned for us, and He is our victor. So then, so then, verse 12, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Boy, this has been a verse that has been twisted and mangled, and we're just going to try very quickly to make it as clear as we possibly can. In the original, it simply means this. Work out your salvation to its completed end, or as you've obeyed in the past, obey now and work on it to its completion or work on, its, work on it to its finishing point. That your salvation that is offered to you as a gift from God will be met with and aided with your obedience, your choice, your action, your response. Your active pursuit. See to it then with serious caution. In other words, as we looked even last night, with soberness, see to it because all of the energy... All of the energizing essential resource provided for you, for you indeed to have the mind of Christ in you, has been provided already by God, who is the one who is working in you and bringing this to pass. The onus, I want us to realize, is always on God. He delivers. He keeps His word. He never, ever holds back what we must have to fulfill His will. What a faithful God we have. 
So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now even more in my absence, work out or complete it to its objective end, bring it to pass with caution and with serious interest, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul had already paved the way for us to understand what's available for us when he made this clear. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Isn't that good? What a foundation reminder for us that even though this is a staggering challenge, I can have the same disposition, I can have the same mindset, I can have the same attitude in me that was in Christ Jesus, I can have the Christ mindset, yes, that's what the Apostle Paul is affirming without question, yes, because it's all in the resources of the God who is at work in you. Now that doesn't give us an out to say, I thought there was something being expected of me. There is. Work out your salvation with cautious exertion and intensity. That's our part to play. But God offers us the energy. So how could we pray? How should we pray? I want to leave you with this. One thing that we could pray is, Lord Jesus, empty me of myself my self-centered self. And by the way, in any of these prayers that I might mention, mean it. Mean it. Why? Because God knows the heart. He knows if you're faking it. He doesn't just say, oh, they used the right words. It must be real. It must be true. He knows the heart. Empty me of ego praising. Empty me of an opposing will to God's will. Shape and frame my attitude to that of Christ. Transform my mindset. Purify my disposition. Bring me to real Jesus humility. Those are prayers that we could pray. Why is that important? because we have to respond. And if we respond in a way that pleases the Lord, you know what I believe with all of my heart and I found it to be true? If we pray the kinds of prayers that God ignites in us and inspires in us, God not only revels in the fact that we're praying the right prayer, but he's there and ready to help us so that the prayer will be answered. Friends, I mean this with all of my heart. I read this passage and I say with with a heart that is as interested in this as I am in anything else. I want to have the mind set, the attitude, the disposition of Christ. We sang, may the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. That's what we're talking about the mind of Christ. So cooperate with him. Prayerfully approach this text.
give the amen to it. Let it be so in me. And may God take his word and apply it to our hearts by the same powerful Holy Spirit who inspired it in the first place. And make us and transform us into replications of the Christ he sent to the flesh in the first place. May God help us. It has been a privilege to be with you. I want us to prayerfully conclude our time together. So Beth, if you would prepare to come lead us in just a moment. Well, let's share this word of prayer together. Father, this is your word. Your word reveals your will. We dare not look at any other example but Jesus. That's where you have directed us this day. This text doesn't speak that we're to be like Paul. This text doesn't speak that we're to be like any other disciple. This text raises the bar and indicates that we are to have the same disposition in us that was also in Jesus. It must be possible because you've punctuated this by the fact that you are the one who is at work in us to bring this to pass. Oh God, help us not to stop you short of what you want to do in us. So help us in these closing moments just to respond to you however you direct so that when we leave this time, we have the peace of God ruling and umpiring our hearts, knowing we've honored you as you've asked in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. In your songbooks, page 87. Oh, to be like thee. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. This is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures. Jesus, thy perfect likeness to Stamp thine own image deep on my
final verse, verse 5. Oh, to be like thee while I am pleading, pour out thy spirit, fill with thy love, make me a Jesus, we thank you for the invitation of your word. This challenging invitation to have the same attitude in us, the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus. This challenge that comes with the promise that it is you in us that makes that possible. So God, give us grace as we respond to your word in these moments in this day, that we would settle for nothing less than your image being replicated in us, you restoring in us and transforming us that when people see us, when they encounter our attitude, our way of thinking and being and relating, that they would see you, Jesus. They would encounter you. Thank you, God, for making that possible by your grace and power when we respond to you in faith and obedience. Empower us, God, to walk like you, we pray in the name of Jesus.